Um, so our reading tonight is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, verses 10 until 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Um, and this is from the ESV, which should be on the screen. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. If you have a Bible, electronic um, or otherwise, if you just keep it open there in 2 Timothy, uh, we've got a few weeks before the, the university term starts proper and um, before the uni church term starts proper, uh, before we get into our main bulk of what we're going to be looking at in the Bible from, I think, the 27th, isn't it, of September onwards. In these few weeks in the lead up to that, we're thinking a wee bit about what are the essential characteristic features of a church? What ought to be our identity? What ought to be our activity? Um, these letters in this bit of the Bible, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are known as the pastoral epistles. They're written to pastors. Paul writes two of them to Timothy and one of them to Titus. You might think to yourself, surely you should keep this to a staff meeting, Trevor, your first staff meeting with these guys, with the new ministry apprentices. How relevant is this stuff? I'm not a pastor. How relevant is this stuff to me? Well, whenever you look at it, whenever you understand it, you see it's fundamentally relevant to us all together here. Because what you will do, what you will work out from this passage and from the rest of these pastoral epistles are what pastors, ministers, those who are engaged in looking after churches, those who are engaged in ministry, what their priorities should be, what they should be doing. 
There are loads of things you could be doing. You could become kind of uh, an, addition, an additional factor or additional component to the health service as a minister. You could also to the social services. You could do loads and loads of things to various other charitable causes, loads and loads of things. And believe it or not, the pressure is on people like me and anyone who's engaged in ministry full-time to do that. But we come back to the Bible. What's Jesus's priority? What has Paul written here? That Timothy in this instance and Titus in the little letter to Titus What should they be doing? What should they be concerning themselves? And from this, we get what should our priorities be. Our priorities here as Unichurch and our priorities just as Christians who are part of a church, indeed any church. So let's pray as we have a look at this. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, great thanks for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's given us new life in Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to keep us by your word. And Lord, may the priorities listed here be our priorities here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were going to write two or three words when I say, please describe God's power, what would you write? What would you draw? You might draw a lightning bolt, for example. You might draw a a massive tide or wave. You try to convey the power that it's a big, big, powerful thing. Where is God's power found? Where is God's power located? God's power is located in his word. And as we shape ourselves around the priorities that Paul laid out for Timothy, as those of us who engage in full-time ministry shape ourselves, It's all to do with God's word, the Bible. It really is as simple as that. It really is as unremarkable as that. But if you think that that's unremarkable, you kind of miss the point because God's word is the powerful thing. It is the thing through which God does his work. And that's why we give so much time here at Uni Church on Sunday evenings to having a look at the Bible. Why we give so much time during the course of the week in our growth groups looking at the Bible. Why we give so much time over the course of an hour or two hours in a one-to-one looking at the Bible. Because that is the thing where God's power is located. This is where God brings, by his Holy Spirit, change in people's lives. Turning them from darkness to light, turning them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Jesus, making those who were dead in their sin and trespasses alive in Jesus. How is that done? It's done through this word. Second Timothy obviously comes after one Timothy. I did study math, so I can count. Second Timothy is a shorter letter than first Timothy. Paul, who is the author of these, some people deny that Paul is the author of these, but that's untrue. Paul is the author of these. They outline his priorities completely consistent with the rest of Paul in the New Testament. He writes these to Timothy, the clue is at the top, Timothy, who was like his apprentice, his apprentice in ministry, his closest apprentice in ministry, the one who had Paul's heart who knew all about Paul, who had worked so closely with Paul, 
that there was an incredible bond between these two men, one older, one younger, Paul the Apostle, and Timothy the Apprentice. Paul was engaged in ministry in Ephesus. He had spoken to the Ephesian elders. I think we looked at that a couple of weeks ago from Acts chapter 20, whenever we're going through Acts. Paul is pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he spends some time there, three years. He loved the church at Ephesus. He loved the individuals. He loved the collective body. It was really, really precious to him, and he spent so much time with those he left to train and to teach and pastor and lead the church. He shaped them really well. It was time for him to move on. And what does he do? His most trusted apprentice, he puts in charge, if you like, of the church at Ephesus, Timothy. Now, First Timothy is, if we can put it like this, kind of, so imagine you're, you're on, a, on an airplane, right? And there's the takeoff. And just before the takeoff, the air stewardess stands up at the front and there's a safety announcement. It's very gentle and calm, isn't it? Um, you're told to fasten your seatbelt and there's a demonstration. She's smiling. Uh, you're told oxygen will come down from the ceiling if there's an emergency. And she smiles if there's an emergency. I don't like flying, by the way. So all this stuff is going on. And do you expect us to crash? That's my concern. It's very calm, isn't it? Now, I've never been on a plane in a crash, and I guess most of you here haven't been, although I do know someone who was. Uh, apparently, whenever there is a crash or a likelihood of a crash, the air stewardess lose, loses that calm and composure and screeches what you have to do. Brace, brace. It's much more urgent whenever there's an emergency. It's not the kind of calm takeoff thing as you're taxiing. It's not like that at all. It's completely different. The tone is different. The essence of the message, though, hasn't changed. There is danger ahead. So please hold on to your seatbelt as you've buckled it. Please grab the oxygen. There's a different tone. Now, First Timothy, the very first letter that Paul writes to this newly charged minister, Timothy, this newly charged faithful apprentice to look after his most, Paul's most prized possession, that is the church at Ephesus, is a bit like the taxiing safety instructions. There's about five or six chapters of general instructions where, you know, lots of issues are raised. Things like attitude towards money, things like attitude towards well, lots of things. That's the taxing kind of letter. This is the brace, brace letter, 2 Timothy. Timothy's been there for a while, probably about two years, and it's all going wrong. Timothy's under huge, huge pressure because the church at Ephesus, that had so much input and investment by Paul, the great apostle, the one who saw Jesus, who is abnormally born, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, th this church, which had so much benefit, so much growth, so much depth, they were beginning to lose the plot. They were beginning to reject Timothy. They were beginning to marginalize Timothy. They were beginning to confuse the gospel. They were beginning to change their minds about the gospel. And Timothy 
was under pressure, really under pressure. So much so that he's almost, almost about to give up. So this second letter to Timothy is the brace, brace letter. The plane of the church at Ephesus is about to crash. Actually, more importantly, the plane of Timothy's life is about to crash. Timothy's ministry is about to crash. So he's written to them. And we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It wasn't read, and we're not going to read it now. But there's a bit of background to what Timothy should expect. Sometimes our expectations are much higher than they ought to be. And perhaps Timothy didn't really understand the context into which Paul had thrust him. I'll, I'll just read a wee bit. There will be terrible times in the last days, Paul says to Timothy. This is the context in which you're working, Timothy, says Paul. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Now, that's not the world. That's not the non-Christian world. But it sounds like it, doesn't it? The church was in such a mess. What did it look like? How was it acting? How was it behaving? Well, just like the world. In these last days, by the way, the last days are beginning from the moment that Jesus left this earth until Jesus returns. We're in the last days now. Are we at the last of the last days? We don't know. Jesus doesn't know when he's going to be sent back to wrap up everything. So this is the basic context for anyone. This is the basic context that Timothy finds himself in Ephesus, trying to steer this church, trying to steer himself and not completely lose the plot in terms of his own ministry. So we're going to look through this reasonably quickly. You'll be glad to know reasonably quickly as we have a look. Just here are the priorities, Timothy. And in fact, what we do is we have the zenith of what Timothy's priorities should be. Because of course, he's under pressure. So he's beginning to lose the plot. He's beginning to get confused as to what he should be doing, what he shouldn't be doing. And we have the zenith and summary of what the job is all about. What the focus of his ministry is all about. What the focus of the church at Ephesus is ought to be all about. So, verse 10. First thing that Paul tells him here in this little section is, this will cheer you up, suffering will come. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The relationship was so close between Paul and Timothy that Paul was able to say to Timothy, look, you know me. You know how I have been. You've traveled with me. You've seen me teach. You've heard 
my words. You've seen how I live my way of life. Timothy had a great insight into Paul's life. They were engaged in ministry around the ancient world together. He had a close-up and personal view. My way of life. He also knows Paul's direction. What drove Paul? Simply, it was the gospel. The message of Jesus. That Jesus Christ has died for our sins on the cross. Out of his great love, he willingly bears the punishment for our sins on the cross. That is the message. That's his purpose. The message. To get the message out. Timothy knew also of Paul's faith. His trust. His repentance. His ongoing trust and repentance towards Jesus. Timothy knew of Paul's patience. That at the first sign of disagreement, he didn't give up. At the first sign of trouble, he didn't walk away. At the first sign of opposition or the first sign of kind of nonchalant disinterest, he didn't give up. He was patient. He didn't demand results just like that. He knew of his love. He knew of his endurance. He kept going. Okay, we can cope with all of those characteristics. If Paul is selling Timothy what it ought to look like, I'm sure Timothy was thinking, yeah, I know if you're love, that's sweet, that's really nice. That's a positive characteristic, of course we should have it. Faith, of course that's a positive character, of course we should have it. Endurance, yeah, that's good, yes. You mean you want me to stay at this job? Verse 11 introduces persecutions. Oh no, hang on. <laughs> hang on, Paul, I didn't sign up for this. I expected blue NMMs. You can't, was it? It was a request of blue MMs for a concert. I expected that kind of treatment in this room. I expected a big manse, a beautiful manse, and a staff of a hundred. I expected all of those things, but what are, I, are you telling me? Persecution? You mean this job is actually going to be tough, and that is part of it? Yeah. Sufferings? And that is part of it, Paul? Yeah. He gives examples, three examples, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. In Lystra, he had just spoken about the, Jesus, the news of Jesus Christ. It was a man who was lame from birth, was healed. And Paul ended up almost dead because the town turned against him, because he preached the gospel. So Paul faced persecution, sufferings, difficulty, getting beaten up, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a list. Paul actually lists this stuff at the end of 2 Corinthians. Just exactly what happened to him. Come into ministry, they said. It'll be fun, they said. Persecution, suffering. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all, Timothy. In fact, Paul goes on to say, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. The loving father, Paul, to the ministry son, Timothy, you will be persecuted. And anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, whether you're in full-time, financially dependent ministry or not, if you're a Christian and you want to live that godly life, you'll be persecuted. That's a good thing to learn early on in your life. 
It's a good thing to expect not to go looking for it, but to expect it and not to be surprised when it happens. And not only is there that kind of pressure, there is this other pressure. Evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The sharks were circling the church at Ephesus. The sharks were inside the church at Ephesus, teaching wrong things about Jesus. See him today? There are those who teach wrong things about Jesus. Who kind of very subtly, not with any great announcement, not with the words false teacher emblazoned on a t-shirt, who will change the message of Jesus. Who'll make it not so tough. Who'll make it not so difficult to believe. Who'll alter it in such a way that Well, actually, repentance and belief in Jesus is really, well, it's not all that you say it is. Don't believe that stuff. That's kind of how we used to think of these things in the past is what they might say. Evil men and imposters, and they will just get worse and worse and worse. As the persecution and the suffering is heaped on you, Timothy, the evil men will just go from bad to worse. So suffering will come. So what is he to do? In the middle of this, what is he to do? How is he to cope? In the midst of this craziness in the church at Ephesus, the intense personal pressure he was under, what is he to do? He's to continue. And to continue in what? Well, have a look at verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. There's a bit of more detail in that in First Timothy about his granny and his mum. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What is he to do? Well, he's to keep to this book, to the Word of God, to scriptures. He's not to go and consult the latest ministry manual, much as I'm sure there will be various insights. He's not to go and consult some other possible textbook at all, really. It's Bible, Timothy. Continue. Don't shift. When the pressure comes, you'll be under pressure to shift. When someone might be living a particular lifestyle, and you challenge them because it's so clearly against what God has said, you'll come under pressure from them. They'll get their family on to you. You've got to stick to your guns, Timothy. If the Bible says it, you can't alter it. The church can't change the teaching of the Bible. My own denomination, it can't change the teaching of the Bible. There have been many leaders in the churches around the world who've tried to alter what the Bible says with a view that the church wrote the Bible, the church can rewrite the Bible. Don't shift because you've seen its impact in someone's life, your grannies, your moms. In mine, Paul says to Timothy. How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are what? Well, what is the Bible about? Is it just a history book? I grew up in a church where the Bible became just that, a history book. Not a particularly relevant document, 
not really the, the thing that will bring salvation and new life and forgiveness of sins. But here is, in this brief description, just exactly what the Bible is about and its purpose. The Bible is about, have a look, Christ Jesus. The Bible will bring about, have a look, faith in Christ Jesus. We have the subject of the whole thing here. What is it about? Jesus. What will it do? Bring us to faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, look, stick to it. Don't shift. There will be pressure, intense pressure on you. There is intense pressure on you to compromise, to change. You might be losing the plot a bit, Timothy. Please don't. Because the Bible is the only thing that will do the work of God. The only thing that will bring people to salvation and forgiveness. The only thing that will let people know of the true love of God. They will only let people know truly about the true and the living God. The scriptures will do that. We have the purpose of the scriptures. We have the now, verse 16, the origin of the scriptures. This is why he has to continue in them. Verse 16, by the way, what do you believe about the Bible? Really, what do you believe about? Because what you believe about the Bible now, today, will set you on a trajectory for the rest of your life. What you believe about the Bible today, right now, will affect and impact how you hear this stuff, will affect and impact how you get stuck into growth groups or not, or one-to-ones or not, or indeed, whether you read it even or not. This is the start of the term. Why not, kind of the start of the church's term, why not just give yourself an objective to read it? Just read it a bit every day. Pray that God would open up your eyes and mind and heart to what's in there to understand because it's from God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is the tool, Timothy. Scripture comes from God because it's breathed out by God. It's on God's breath. It's from God. This is the nature of Scripture, the origin of Scripture. This book, I mean, this one here is fairly worn. It's a bit shoddy and there's like fingerprints all over it and all that kind of thing. But in here is the most powerful weapon in all of the world. It's here. You want to change a society? You want to change the world? You want to change an individual? This is the thing that will do it. So listen to his logic here, verse 16. All scripture. Now, that's something that the full-time gospel pastor, minister, fancy depend, elder, whatever it is, someone who's engaged in a summer team, someone who's engaged in a, leading a CU group in school or at university or, or in the workplace, kind of Bible studies that meet, I know there's Bible studies that meet in PwC and other big companies in Belfast here and in the town. Th- this is the work, isn't it? Because all scripture, there'd be pressure maybe to think, no, I believe 87.5% of the Bible 
that is from God and trustworthy and reliable. I'll not take that bit that says that thing because I disagree with that thing. If you think there's contradictions in the Bible, well, there aren't. The only contradictions are in your mind as far as the Bible is concerned. It's from God. God breathed as its origin. And listen to its uses. It's useful for, and listen to these, think positives and negatives, all right? And there are four, there are four aspects. And there's a, a positive, a negative, then a negative, and a positive. So try and trace this with me. All Scripture is God-breathed, that's its origin, and is useful for teaching. That's the positive. Then the negative, the corollary negative, is rebuking. So the Bible says God is love, right? Teaching. We're informed God is love. Someone might say God isn't love. Well, you use the same scriptures to rebuke that claim. No, no, God is love. You can say with confidence back to that person who says God isn't love. Rebuking. Teaching, rebuking. Correcting. Correcting false understandings, conceptions, ideas about God. Correcting them. Putting them right. That's difficult to do, isn't it? You might lose friends in that one. Timothy, this is what's going to get you into hot water. Correcting. There there are two of these about character, and there are two of these about doctrine. Two of these about life, two of these about belief. So teaching is about belief. Rebuking is about belief, rebuking falsehoods. Correcting is about way of life. Training in righteousness is the positive aspect of how we're to live. The Bible, therefore, is all-encompassing. It's sufficient to do the work of God. You see how every aspect, there's nothing that doesn't fall under any of these categories. It's completely sufficient. We don't need anything else. When I was a kid, I always wanted a pen knife a long time ago. I still don't have one, by the way. Christmas is coming up, birthdays in July. When I was a kid, I always wanted a pen knife. And you can get those pen knives, which are just kind of knives with sharp bits on it. You can do some damage with them, of course. But the absolute pinnacle of the pen knife that I wanted was the Swiss, you know, Swiss Army knife, familiar with these. It's got everything on it. It's got a corkscrew. It's got like a camera. It doesn't really. It's got like a proper knife. It does, it cuts things, but you can serrated edge and all that. So you can kind of cut bread and all that. If you're up the morns or someone, you get stuck up there. I mean, if you have one of those, you will survive for at least a year. No problem. Burr Grills taught us all this. The Swiss Army pen knife is the pen knife to get. If you're ever going to get a pen knife, because it can do lots of things. It's complete. It's sufficient. It can do loads of things. What do we have here? The tool that will do the work of God. Belief, behavior. Belief, the positive, the negative, teaching, rebuking, 
behavior, correcting, training in righteousness. Completely sufficient. Timothy, use it. Don't walk away from it. Don't turn to anything else. So that, verse 17, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture comes from God. Use it, Timothy. Don't stop using it. Whenever you're in the sticky, wicked, kind of difficult corner with this crowd in Ephesus, continue. Don't veer. Don't get confused. Don't get lost. I'm middle-aged, roughly. I don't know when middle-aged begins. (laughs) No one told me, but apparently I am it. And I have seen generations of friends, very close friends, both older and younger. I've seen contemporaries in ministry, kind of people I was ordained with, um, kind of started this job with. And I've seen over time in my friends, in institutions and organizations, I have seen shift, redirection, different focus. Well, not focus on the gospel, The gospel is true. It remains true, of course, but it'll not be our priority. We'll do other things. We'll be really kind to people. What ought we be doing as a church family? What ought Timothy, Paul's apprentice, his loved apprentice, what ought he be doing? Well, we get at the next few words. And actually, listen listen to how great this is. This is a loving word to a young son in the faith who is perhaps about to lose it. Paul brings the seriousness of this task, this job, to Timothy's attention. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Wow. This is heaven. Heaven is behind Paul as he's standing there or sitting there at his desk writing these words and he's thinking, how am I going to help Timothy with this? What about, how can I drive home the seriousness of this? God is listening. All of heaven is listening. In the presence of God and of Christ, you cannot get a bigger audience than that. You cannot invoke a greater name than that. You cannot find a greater set of anything else, really, can you, than this, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, who will judge those you're serving, Timothy, in Ephesus, who will judge the world, who will judge you, Timothy, In the presence of him, all of heaven, I give you this charge. Drumroll, what is it? What do you think he says? Without looking at it, what do you think he says? This is the absolute zenith and culmination and focus of Timothy's life. This is what it's to be. What do you think it is? What would you put in there? Build more hospitals? More schools? Relieve poverty? 
Timothy, do those things. Relieve, do, relieve poverty. Build more schools. Education is mean, a significant problem. Health. Insecurities. A counseling course, Timothy. Become a counselor. Help people. I'm not dissing any of those. Please don't hear me do that. But what is the focus? Preach the word. It makes sense, doesn't it? If the Bible is all of verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, if it's all of that of chapter 3, it makes sense. Therefore, Timothy, that's the focus. That's the life of you. That's the life of this church. That's the life of the church at Ephesus. That is the life. Preach the word. In season and out of season. You see this. Be prepared in season. When it suits, when it's comfortable to do so. I mean, it's pretty comfortable here. But what if you all started to stand up and shout and harangue and throw tomatoes at me? I'll do that next week because I'm not preaching. What would, what, what would the temptation be? That's the kind of time that it gets difficult, isn't it? Imagine that were happening in the church at Ephesus as Timothy stands in the middle of the church at Ephesus. They start haranguing him. What is he to do? Keep doing it. In season and out of season. When it's handy, when it's comfortable, when it's easy, when it's not comfortable, when it's not handy, when it's really, really, really troublesome, difficult trial, preach the word. Declare it. Declare it when you're at the front. Declare it when you're in people's homes. Declare it whenever you're just walking along the street. Declare it whenever you're in your own home. Declare the word. Keep going. Hurl it. Let everyone know about Jesus Christ from the word, because that is the only thing that does God's work. As the word is, we don't like the word preach. We prefer share. Well, declaration, saying, no, you can't believe that Jesus is only a way to heaven. The Bible says he is the way to heaven. You declare that. Declare it because it says it. When it's easy, when it's difficult, correct, rebuke, and encourage. You see, that's using it in the specific way that it was mentioned to be used in verse 16 of chapter 3. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Be really careful because there are alternatives. The time will come when men will put not, not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's one of my sadnesses of my friends that I've seen over these years and over the generations, kind of stretching generations. They stop believing this stuff because it doesn't suit how they want to live. <laughs> the number of people I know who just walk away from Jesus. And it's, it's subtle, actually really subtle. It's a gradual thing over time, and a lot of them, they'll kind of just begin to say, well, I've got a bit of an issue with that particular thing, aspect of God, like God's sovereignty, or kind of Jesus being the only way to heaven. I mean, what about all those people who are not Christians? And, 
And they'll throw up all of these almost pseudo-intellectual arguments, I would say. And they will then find authors on the internet or on the bookshelves of various bookshops, kind of ASINs, it's no longer their Waterstones, or other, that will justify their position. But where has it all stemmed from? Where does it all come from? Something in their personal life. Normally, a moral issue to do with the relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And it's so sad because what happens is for others, they begin to just fall like dominoes because they see this person that they'd once respected and they hear them beginning to diss the Bible, beginning to doubt the Bible. And it looks intellectual, it looks convincing, it looks persuasive, but it actually isn't. Where does it come from? Well, because of a lifestyle change. And they gather and find those teachers who will say, I've seen it. I've seen it. If you have been around for a while, you will have seen it. Instead, to suit their own desire. See where it comes from? They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears wants to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. Sorry, myths, plural, you notice that? Not just one myth. There is one truth. You see the contrast? There is one truth, the truth. Start believing other stuff, and there's lots of different options. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, looking straight into Timothy's eye, my loved son, Keep your head. Keep your head, Timothy, but lose your life. Notice the contrast here, verse 5. Keep your head in all situations. See the next committee meeting that you have with the elders in Ephesus? Don't lose your head with them. Don't lose the rag or lose the bap. It's not in that translation of the Bible there, but that's really what he's saying. Don't lose the bap. Keep your head. Keep calm. And carry on. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And notice the little thing. Be an evangelist. Continue in the work of evangelism. Because that with the pressure of the church will be the thing to go. In the real life pressure of the church. When you're getting all of this rubbish thrown at you. That will go. You'll stop evangelizing. You'll stop looking beyond the people who are in front of you. You'll stop trying to pull people in who do not know Jesus. That will stop. That will fall. That will be one of the things that will go. Discharge all the duties of your ministry because keep your head, Timothy, but lose your life. Verse 8, 6. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I'm dying like a, a cup of wine. This is from the Old Testament. Sacrificial temple imagery. Like a cup of wine being poured out on the altar. That's my life. This is Paul's last letter. I'm going to die. I'm not going to see you again. I'm sure there were tears dripping onto the papyrus. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all 
who have longed for that appearing, all, you, Timothy included. So where's the power? Where is God's power located? Is it kind of in the thunderbolt, in the lightning? Is it in the impressive thing? No, it's in this. Don't lose the plot, Timothy. Keep going, Timothy. Because that is where the power is. And as the word is preached, shared, spoken, enlarged, heralded, taught, read, kind of applied in your conversations as that all goes on, in your growth groups as that all goes on, here as that all goes on, God is at work powerfully, powerfully at work bringing people to know Jesus, the one who died for them out of his great love for them. Will you keep going? Will you keep your head? Will you lose your life, Timothy? Will you join him? Will you join us as we make this our priority? What I pray now, and we asked that the Lord would help us to build around this in our lives individually and in our church family together as we get into this term. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings us life, that it tells us who you are and it tells us who we are. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would heed these warnings, hear these encouragements. Lord, that the Bible would be so active in our personal lives daily, in our life together here, Lord, on Sundays, at growth groups, Lord, in one-to-ones, in every opportunity, that this sufficient word would be known to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Please, Build us up in this program. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.